Welcome back to Cheer Incorporated, a podcast launched by the investigative journalists at FitzNews.com. Cheer Incorporated is produced by FitzNews, which broke this story wide open in the summer of 2022 with its coverage of the Rockstar Cheer sex abuse scandal in Greenville, South Carolina. Cheer Incorporated is dedicated to exposing the culture of sexual abuse, intimidation, and the ensuing cover-up within America's cheerleading industry. Our team digs deep, provides context, and shares stories, starting with those who endured the very worst of this industry's ravages, but extending our microphones also to everyone with something insightful to say on this story. This podcast is written, narrated, and produced by our research director and resident cheer mom, Jen Wood, by our director of special projects, Dylan Nolan, and by me, Fitz News founding editor, Will Folks. Got something you think we should know about this story? Email us at research at fitznews.com. That's research at F-I-T-S-N-E-W-S dot com. Like the last episode, we're doing things a bit differently in this one as we approach the end of our first season of Cheer Inc. Once again, there's less script and a lot more conversation. Over the last few weeks, you've gotten to know Jen very well, and you've gotten to know me a little bit. And last week, you got better acquainted with the third member of our production team, Dylan Nolan. I call him the brains of the outfit, and with good reason. He literally is the brains of the outfit. Dylan has led our video and audio offerings for the past year at Fitz News, most recently leading our coverage of the first criminal trial tied to the Murdoch murders crime and corruption saga. In this week's episode, Jen and Dylan discuss the latest Cheer Incorporated lawsuit filed in California by attorneys with the Columbia, South Carolina-based Strom Law Firm and the San Diego-based Pride Law Firm. This lawsuit includes yet another incredibly important link to the alleged conspiracy at the heart of this saga, which now includes a dozen federal actions in seven states involving 21 survivors and implicating more than 40 defendants. To put all of these lawsuits into a bigger picture, Dylan and Jen also discuss an incredibly important contextual piece that was published this month by Daniel Libet of Sportico, one of the few national reporters who seems intent on following the story no matter where it leads. Honestly, we need a dozen more like Daniel if this industry is ever going to be held accountable, and if competitive cheer is ever to become and remain a truly safe place for our children. Now, here's Jen and Dylan. The Cheer Incorporated saga scandal started in South Carolina uh, with the suicide, the death by suicide of Rockstar Cheer founder Scott Foster. It slowly spread across the southeastern region of the United States and made its first real jump into Ohio. It's now made a leap all the way across the country to California with a new lawsuit that follows many of the same patterns that we've seen before. Uh, I'm Dylan Nolan, the producer of this show, here with Jennifer Wood, and we're going to break down this lawsuit for you, as well as some of the back-end developments in the industry that were exposed so well by Daniel Libet of Sportico. Jennifer, you want to jump in on this California lawsuit? Yep. So the California lawsuit was filed, um, I believe, last week, and it is the gym involved is Cheerforce, which is based in Simi Valley. Uh, the coaches, uh, the owners of Cheerforce are Becky and Sean Herrera, 
and the coach who is accused of abuse is Sean Miller. So the interesting thing about this lawsuit is Becky Herrera, who owns Cheerforce with her husband, Sean, um, is also on the USASF board of directors. She was just named to it in September, and she's listed on the site still as the USASF Connection Chair. So this lawsuit um, alleges the abuse began uh, for this young Jane Doe, who was 15 years old when it began in 2005, while she was cheering at Cheerforce in Simi Valley in California. Sean Miller was her coach, and at the time um, the abuse began, he was 24 years old. So she was 15, he was 24. And it, it, I thought this was interesting because um, the lawsuit... Uh, alleges that uh, Miller began implementing unusual stunt spotting techniques in an unconventional catching positions with a Jane Doe, uh, which resulted in her being touched in unwanted and inappropriate manners. And we talked about this a little bit when we were speaking with um, Professor Giora about you know how hands-on cheerleading is as a sport. So I thought that was an interesting um, point in the lawsuit that was made. But it's also not uh, the first time that we've seen this allegation made. No, no, it is not. But it's just another, another pat. I mean, it's just showing more and more patterns of abuse and grooming because in the lawsuit, um, it, it also alleges that these inappropriate and unwanted touches eventually progressed to groping, fondling and other unwanted touching. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I definitely think that um, seeing a lot of just you know these are for the most part different coaches in different states and different gyms across the country, and the techniques seem to be that they're using seem to be the same. Um, we talked earlier in earlier lawsuits about um, the coaches providing the the victim survivors with alcohol and illegal drugs. And this occurred in this lawsuit as well. The coach provided Jane Doe with cocaine and MDMA. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of patterns that I'm seeing. Right. We did an episode early in this season called The Groomer's Playbook that laid out a lot of these things. It laid out how these individuals will often start when these athletes are young. They'll develop a relationship of trust. Uh, That will eventually move to... It will start with inappropriate comments. There will be inappropriate touching, and that will eventually escalate to, like we've seen in this California lawsuit, a full-blown inappropriate sexual relationship between an adult and a minor. And as you said, what's so disturbing is that this is occurring not in just one locality with one group of individuals who know each other, but across the country, across the industry, and across this sport. So it sounds like the coach coach uh, left the gym, and when he went to a new gym, Jane Doe followed him there. And that's when the abuse allegedly turned sexual. He was also, in addition to being a coach, a realtor, and he was using the properties listed to take her to have sex at them. Um, it wasn't until 2021 when Jane Doe was cheering at the same gym where she cheered under the coach who abused her, that she began experiencing severe PTSD symptoms. And at that point, she disclosed to her current coach the details of Miller's sexual abuse of her. Um, And that coach assisted her with reporting 
the abuse and beginning the USASF reporting process, which is another point that I think is really important in this lawsuit because it sounds like the reporting, in addition to being traumatized by the abuse, the reporting process also caused the the survivor additional trauma. So she was, uh, she stated that she was doing her best to participate and cooperate with the USASF investigative and reporting process, but in, rather than providing her with a degree of security and reassurance that you should receive while you're reporting abuse, the process she reported was deeply traumatizing and unsettling. It sounds like uh, the investigative interviews that the USASF investigators did with her, the plaintiffs experienced, uh, quote, bullying, skepticism, dismissiveness, and a general lack of belief, end quote. And to top it off, she wasn't even made aware of the disposition of a report or any action that was taken against Miller as a result of a report. So she started this reporting process and did, you know, did what she needed to do. And they didn't even let her know the outcome of it, which is extremely concerning because we saw the same thing in the Ohio case. Right. And fortunately, unlike the Ohio case, which by the way, the Ohio case gave us a real insight into how the USASF operates, because as a part of that filing, there were internal communications, both between USASF attorneys and the plaintiff, as well as between a USASF executive and the plaintiff that showed that while this one specific executive tried to do the right thing, she stepped in and she clearly recognized the seriousness of the situation. Once the attorneys were brought in, I I can completely understand how if you were a victim, you would feel as though this person is not there trying to get justice for you or trying to ensure that this isn't going to happen to somebody else, but trying to minimize the organization's legal liability. But unlike right. Ohio, where the, the ruling was that there was not enough evidence to preclude the uh, affected individuals from working with minors again, what I would call the right decision was made here and that this person was placed on the in- ineligibility list. Now, I don't We're- like the citation that they included, which was that a member policy violation related to athlete protection that that, that's the infringement they cited. If you see that, you're not sure whether they failed to spot somebody and they broke their back, whether they, they showed up drunk. You, it's no indication that this was a sexual problem. Um, and I think that that could very easily allow anybody with that slapped on their record to get another job working with children, whether it be in the cheerleading world or in another field. Whereas if you indicate that it is for a sexual abuse issue, this is likely to follow them. Right. And Miller is still to this day on the ineligible list. So while they did do the right thing, you're right. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to know that this person will be kept from working with child athletes or children in general going forward, which is concerning. And how these governing bodies operate, it's pretty boring, you know, boilerplate corporate type stuff on its face. However, I think reporter Daniel Libet of Sportico, he's a guy that we've mentioned before. He, he does really good work on this case at, case at the national level. Broke down USH here in the USASF. Now, we've spoken about the USASF on this program before multiple times. The uh, United States All-Star Federation 
USA Cheer, how is that different than the USASF Gen? Right. So Daniel Libet did a great article this week, um, and it, it was talking about the relationship between USA Cheer and USASF, and that, that executives and the cheer industry are starting to argue that cheer needs one governing body, and they're positioning USA Cheer to take that role um, on behalf of all of cheerleading and not just USASF. So the difference between USA Cheer and USASF is that USA Cheer governs all forms of cheerleading. So you're, that's including um, scholastic cheerleading, college cheerleading, recreational league cheerleadings like your Pop Warner cheerleaders, and all-star cheerleaders in addition. And USASF specifically governs, and I'm using governs loosely because I don't know that I exactly agree with that description, but governs all-star cheerleading. So what we've run into with USASF is that it is so deeply tied to varsity. So in addition, both USASF and USA Cheer are funded by revolving loans from varsity. But the problem is with USASF, their bylaws state that varsity-owned companies must hold a permanent majority of seats on the USASF board of directors. So that means that varsity has a majority vote on decisions that are made on behalf of all-star cheerleaders, including their safety. So while USA Cheer isn't, is funded by that revolving loan from varsity, which they're stating they're working on paying down, um, they do not hold a majority seat as far as I can tell from their bylaws. So Varsity employees hold six seats on their 15-member board of directors, but all six employees of USA Cheer are paid by Varsity as contractors. So while they're not directly Varsity employees, their salaries are paid by Varsity. So is it far enough removed from Varsity to effectively govern and ensure the safety of child athletes? I, I, I struggle to believe that they don't have enough of a vested interest to remain independent in their decisions. Right. There are legal standards for controlling an organization, and I think that that is something we'll see argued in courts, or maybe it won't make it to court, but it's certainly something that will come up in the litigation process. However, just if you're a parent looking at this or if you're, you're an outsider looking at this, I think that you would look at this situation and say, okay, you're responsible for a revolving line of credit that funds the organization. You hold six out of 15 seats on the board and you're contracting, you're paying for these employee contractors. That's a lot of control. And as we're learning more and more about the allegedly monopolistic position that Varsity has in this industry, I think that that's something that will still make people uncomfortable. I mean, it's one degree of separation farther away than the USASF is, but it's still pretty darn close. And Daniel does a great job of breaking that down. I agree. Uh, he spoke with uh, Les Stella, who used to be a varsity employee um, and now runs his own cheerleading. He was trying to start his own cheerleading company, WASF, World All-Star Federation, about the reasoning for these these entities, USASF and USA Cheer initially. And Les Stella had an interesting quote in the Spartacle 
Sportico article where he said um, that Jeff Webb told him in no uncertain terms that Varsity had created the governing bodies because, quote, it wasn't because we wanted some governing bodies to effing tell us what to do. It was our strategy to take over all-star cheerleading and effing work too, end quote. So it sounds to me like Varsity in creating these governing bodies based on this quote, I mean, of course, Jeff Webb denied saying this, but based on this quote from Lestelle, it sounds like me that their intent was to control the sport, not to provide, not to provide guidance and, and safety regulations for the athletes. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, they certainly do have an iron tight grip on the sport and the industry. And I don't think that that happened by accident. Obviously, I don't follow Jeff Webb along and, you know, everywhere he goes. And I don't know if he actually said that. But those organizations seem to have had the intended effect if he did say that. Right. Right. I mean, that's all hearsay. <laughs> but Certainly. I mean, so yeah, I mean, and Daniel Libet had an interesting point in the article because in motions that Varsity filed late last month in the sex abuse lawsuits, Libet pointed out that Varsity argued that the plaintiffs had failed to illegally establish that it was the parent corporation of either the USASF or USHR. And they, they were citing language that from an appeals court ruling in a separate lawsuit, which held that the funding or founding of an entity is insufficient in establishing the ownership or control of the entity. So apparently there is case law that establishes that just funding an entity does not mean that you control it. I haven't looked at the case law yet, but I thought that was an interesting point, and it'll be interesting to see how the court handles that. And obviously when you're dealing with the market, there's another court that matters, and that's the court of public opinion. We We heard earlier in the season, I want my $49 back with an expletive thrown in there, of course. Um, (laughs) And I think that there's going to be a lot of parents who, as they learn more about these organizations, organizations that they certainly, you know, we're all busy, we all work, we all have to shuttle kids everywhere if you have them. They're they're not going to be looking into the board of these organizations. But now that we're putting this information right in front of them, they might be thinking twice about it. Right, right. I mean, I... My my daughter's been cheerleading for, I think, six years now, and it's not something that I ever knew about until I started looking at the story specifically. I mean, I had followed the cheer scandal with Jerry Harris. I'd followed Marissa Kwiatkowski's amazing series of articles in USA Today. So I knew a baseline of it, but I didn't really understand the control that varsity appears to have over governing the sport in addition to monetizing it so and you know they're it behooves them to have a clean governing body and i just think it's interesting and i don't think a lot of parents are following this yet i think hopefully they're starting to though yeah yet is the operative word here and it's a very interesting thing that we're doing here in covering this story and doing a podcast about this story and writing articles about it because it's all unfolding in live time. So we're always kind of waiting to see who makes what play next and then obviously responding to it 
through our reporting. However, this show is going to take a break for a number of weeks. Um, at Fitz News, which is the organization that you hear about at the start of every episode of this show, we primarily focus on South Carolina news. It's a South Carolina-based news outlet founded in the early 2000s, and it kind of started as a, a state house, uh, inside baseball, political-type blog, and over the years expanded into a larger news outlet that covers the happenings in the state of South Carolina, as well as some D.C. and national issues. Um, you might have heard of the Alex Murdaugh double homicide, the Murdaugh murders. We are covering that trial. We're actually going to be going out of town to a town called Walterboro, South Carolina. We're going to be living there for about a month, although it, we've been told it could take up to six weeks, which so help us God if that happens. But <laughs> we're going to be completely out of pocket. So during that trial, you will not be hearing from us. However, we are going to be working on producing the second season of this show. That means we're going to be lining up some really great interviews as well as doing deep dive research that's required to kind of do what Daniel did in, in this recent article where you really get down to the bone of how this industry operates. Because without somebody really getting in there and digging, that stuff's just never going to come to light. Right. And I, I'm hoping that, you know, during our downtime, during the trial, we have plenty of time to dig into these aspects that, you know, we I think are going to be important in our future coverage. And, you know, Jen and I are so delusional that we think that we're going to have enough downtime during this trial to be doing this. Now, uh, you know, we're probably actually going to be running around like our hair is on fire, but <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll make time. We'll find it, as we always do, to get this done. But yes. um, next week, we have a very special episode planned for you. We're not at liberty to discuss it much further than that because it is uh, something that's tied up with some rather sensitive litigation. So we need to make sure that we get the timing on this absolutely perfect. If next week's episode does not come out at the regularly scheduled time, we'll let you know, but that is why. However, we are crossing our fingers and hoping that we can release this. It's a project that we've actually had in the can for a long time. It's something we were very fortunate to even get to record. Uh, and we have been anxiously waiting, being able to put this in front of you guys, our audience, the people who care about this story. So stay tuned, get ready. We have an awesome end of this season planned. Um, yeah, and then we are and, going to be... Fingers and toes crossed on this one. Yeah, I have them crossed right now as we're recording this. But we have some great stuff in the works for season two. Uh, we just wanted to give you a little bit of a note of where this show is going. Thank you, Dylan. Thanks again for listening to Cheer Incorporated. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, download, and submit a review. But most importantly, please share it, especially if you know someone who needs to hear the message. Stay tuned for next week's episode when we'll hear for the very first time directly from one of the survivors of this ongoing factory of abuse. You won't want to miss that episode. We'll see you then, and thanks again.